Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series on the book of Revelation as he speaks from Revelation 13 and seeks to shed some light and understanding on this passage. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. Walking in victory through Jesus. Welcome to Impact Church. How is everybody doing this morning? We're good? As we get going, uh, I'm excited for us because we really get to see the Bible come alive today. And I hope you're excited about that because we're going to gain some understanding. We're going to learn the Bible. And you're going to gain some understanding that maybe you haven't had in the past. So this is going to be a, a really great message and it's going to strengthen your faith in God and his word today. All right? Let's... Uh, Get rocking because we got a lot to go through and it's going to be really, really, really informative and really good. So the title of today's message is a second part message that we started last week and it's entitled The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, all right? And we started this last week and we uh, said that there was going to be some characters that would show up on the scene. And we alluded to like a keeping score in a scorebook in baseball or softball. And you have to write the names of the players on each side and their numbers. And you'll keep track as the game goes through of what happens. Well, we see that in God's word that there's these list of characters, players, if you will, in the end times that are on both sides. And we're going to be introduced to two of them today for Team Satan. And we're going to understand a little bit more about who they are and what they come in to do. Because quite frankly, some of the characters we've seen are good, right? Some of them are bad, and some of them are just plain ugly, all right? So we're going to see some plain ugly today, as well as some good at the end, all right? So last week, just to kind of quickly recap, we saw how John described the dragon to us, all right? And that was definitively seen as Satan because it gave his name. It described who that dragon was to us. And, he, and John gave us some history about Satan in the first five verses, and then he caught us up to where we were in verse 6 through the end of chapter 12 on what was taking place with the dragon, that he would, at the midpoint of the tribulation, be evicted from heaven. That twists some people's theology, but did you know that right now, as of now, Satan has access to the throne of heaven, and he accuses you and the brethren every day, day and night, before the Lord. Did you know that? But there's coming a time in the midpoint of the tribulation where he will be cut off, and he will not have access to that throne anymore. That's very clear. And when he has that, he gets fired up mad because he knows his time is short, and so he turns his wrath out on the people of the earth, on God's people that have been converted during the tribulation, all right? So now we're going to see just how he does that. We're going to see what he does to make that happen, okay? So we're going to see the hot pursuit, if you will, that they get in. Some of you may have watched the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, way back when uh, TV shows used to come on. It was a, a show called The Dukes of Hazard. I used to watch as a kid every week. And you had the Duke boys, right? And if you remember, if you've ever seen that show, there was this character called Boss Hog. Y'all remember Boss Hog? Sitting back in his white suit with cigar all the time. And he had his little his, his sidekick, his, his uh, little minion, that his name was Sheriff Roscoe Pico Train. All right? You remember him? 
and they were always after them Duke boys, trying to get them. And, and, and Roscoe would so often sit in the bushes and hide and run the radar when the Duke boys would come speeding by that he would take off. He would get on the radio. So we're in hot pursuit, right? You remember that? Say, let's go get them, Flash. So we're going to get them Duke boys this time. Say, gee, 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 gee. Remember that? All right. <laughs> so we're going to see as Satan with his wrath gets thrown out of heaven, okay? And he's going to send Boss Hog and Roscoe Pico train after God's people in hot pursuit, all right? So we're going to see that here today and how that takes place. Because usually what would happen with old Roscoe in his hot pursuit, he would always fail. He would never catch him, would he? Oftentimes, most times he would crash his car, usually into a lake. And we're going to see here that the Antichrist and the false prophet are in hot pursuit after God's people. And they think they've gained a victory, but in the end, they're going to crash into a lake of fire. And God's going to have the victory. And even in the midst of all that, we're going to see some people, some real followers of Christ that were converted during the tribulation that stood the test and stood through the end, even given their life for the cause of the faith. And they stand in victory over the enemy. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Your gracious heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, we come here today to worship you. So Lord, we praise you, we magnify you, we glorify you. And Lord, we wanna hear from you. Lord, as we dig deeper into your revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the only book that comes with a promise that blessed are those who hear, read, and keep this prophecy. Lord, may we hear and understand and know your word today, and may it strengthen our faith in your word, especially as we look around us and we see things lining up and matching up with everything that's in this book and even in this passage today. Some stuff that used to be probably confusing or seemed impossible, now we see. Lord, help us, Father, today as we learn. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that your spirit would fall upon this place, that we wouldn't just learn, that we would have application, Father, and Lord, that we would leave here moved by your spirit, Lord, to live for you. Lord, in a world that so desperately needs your hope and your salvation. So Lord, I pray that you would move us and you get glory for everything which you're about to do through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do, or a copy of God's word in some fashion, even if it's on a phone or a tablet, you can light your face up. Or flip the pages to Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 13 today for the most part. We will leak over into 14 at the very end, but we'll be mostly in chapter 13. And I'll actually read the last verse of chapter 12 here for you in a bit. Because like I said, we're going to see these two powerhouse characters on the side of the enemy that come on the scene. The Antichrist, who will be a political powerhouse. The false prophet, who will be a religious powerhouse. Okay? And they're going to come in in hot pursuit of Christ's followers for the last three and a half years of the tribulation for those who were converted during the tribulation period. All right? So we're going to see that. Here's what the big deal is. How many of you like riddles? Anybody like riddles? You're like, man, no, I don't like riddles. Most people don't like riddles. Okay? All right? Remember, as a um, growing up, uh, not me growing up, but my kids were growing up and having to watch this show called Dora the Explorer, I think it was. 
I had to sit there and, and suffer through a lot of that, right? And I remember there was this one character who was like this troll, and he would say, solve my riddle, all right? And he had to solve the riddle before they could go across the bridge or whatever, right? Well, we have a riddle we have to solve here because if we don't, we're not going to understand the rest of the book of Revelation. In fact, most people just read Revelation just to check it off their list of their yearly Bible reading plan, and they take no time to go in and try to dive in and understand this. And honestly, most churches don't either. And that's the scary part, okay? So you will have this understanding gained today from this riddle of sorts. It seems confusing, but can I tell you it's actually very simple? That if you use scripture to interpret scripture, that this comes to life and you will gain understanding, all right? So we're going to see that today. And what we're going to learn, as we've learned so far, is that Daniel is the key. You have to understand Daniel to understand Revelation, all right, and especially in this part. So we're going to go into that again, and we'll see that Daniel holds the key. Last thing before I read this passage, we need to understand that chapter 13 is not a separate vision from chapter 12, okay? It's a continuation of thought, all right? So when the Bible was translated and deviated up into the word that you have here, okay, the original manuscript of the Greek, when John wrote, did not have chapters and verses. It was just continuous thought. We broke it up into chapters and verses, all right? So chapter 12 is not completely separate, and we'll see why. Because we saw the dragon get cast out, his wrath turned, now he's going to turn to God's people. This is how. So let's read the last verse in chapter 12, and then we'll read chapter 13, verses 1 through 10 to get started. So I'm going to start with verse 17 in chapter 12. It says, and the dragon was enraged with the woman. We saw last week the woman was Israel, God's people. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. All right? So the woman, Israel, those in Petra, Jesus had told them to run to the mountains. They probably ran to this place called Petra. God protected them and provides for them for the last three and a half years. Satan can't touch them in there. Those that are outside of Petra, the 144,000, all those who become converted to Jesus during the tribulation, Satan turns his wrath on them through the rest of the world. Okay, so this is where we're at. Now, chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed, and all of the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. 
He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. All right, I'm excited for us. Let's dig in. So first thing we need to know right here, in chapter 13, what we just read is the Antichrist and a revived Roman Empire are the beast from the sea. All right, if you're taking notes, you can write that just so you understand, and we're going to dig that out and show you why. The Antichrist and the revived Roman Empire together are the beast from the sea, and we're going to see how that is, all right? So the beast out of the sea, this isn't like some picture of some um, actual literal beast, like some uh, sci-fi Loch Ness monster rising up. It's not that, okay? This isn't Stephen King, all right? This is the Bible. It's giving our our, our picture that we're going to see definitively on what this beast represents, okay? So the sea refers to the Gentile nations. It's not referring to the actual water. This thing doesn't come up out of the middle of the ocean, okay? The sea in the Bible is referring to the Gentile nations. We see that definitively from Daniel chapter 7, okay, where his vision, where he saw four beasts coming up out of the sea. That was explained, and we'll read that here in a little bit, that those beasts, those were beasts, were kingdoms, and the sea that they come out of, therefore, were the nations, okay, that they rose up in power. We also see this um, identity as a sea being uh, nations or people in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, where it definitively says the waters that the woman sits on, all right, is people in many nations. So we get this idea now and see that this beast is coming up out of a sea of people, okay, in many nations. It says that on his head was written a blasphemous name. On every single head had blasphemous name. So this points to this beast and this antichrist who will lead this beast, this revived Roman empire, that they have a true message of blasphemy against God, that he will be the one true God, this leader of this revived Roman empire. So it speaks of his message, but it also speaks of his character. And his character, this Antichrist, remember, he started at the beginning of the tribulation. His character hadn't been revealed just yet in his blasphemy, all right? He's come on the scene as this politician of all politicians, this smooth-talking devil that's got an answer for everything and a solution. And he just leads the world into all, He's such the man. He's the great person. And he's led Israel into finally having peace. And he's let them rebuild the temple. And life is great. And we're going to see what happens. All right? So his message and his character is blasphemy. We see that um, that is solidified also from the book of Daniel in many places. And also 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that he will speak pompous words. And that he will set himself up as God in blasphemy. So... This is what we need to understand to gain some clarity on this. This beast has seven heads. What do you think the heads represent? You got to go back to Daniel has the key. Daniel chapter 7. Still, this is not a different separate vision from Daniel 7. This is a continuation of the vision that Daniel saw in chapter 7 with all these beasts coming up out of the sea that have heads, okay? So we know from Daniel chapter 7 that these heads represent kingdoms, okay? So the heads on the beast represent kingdoms. If you remember from last week, the heads on the dragon, the seven, represent kingdoms, 
all right, that Satan was empowered. He's empowering this. We're going to see why this still has seven heads, okay? Heads represent kingdoms. So why was Daniel chapter 7 only counting four then? Because if you remember that passage, and we'll read here a little bit, well, it's because Daniel was recounting the kingdoms that reigned during the time of the Gentiles. That's a phrase that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, and is regarding empires that ruled over the nation of Israel, specifically Jerusalem. Okay, so think about this. So there's two kingdoms that Daniel left out then. That's why he only had four as opposed to a total of six. The first kingdom that you will recall that come against Israel and Jerusalem was the Egyptian empire, right? Remember the Exodus, we got a whole book in the Bible about that. So the Egyptian kingdom, then the Assyrian kingdom, when they took over the, the 10 tribes of the northern part of Israel, okay? Then after the Assyrian kingdom, then that's where Daniel started counting with the Babylonian empire who overtook them in 586 BC and destroyed Jerusalem in the temple. Remember, we went through the whole book of Ezra and talked about how after 70 years in captivity, they came back to rebuild the temple and God provided, Okay. Then after the Babylonian Empire was the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And we're going to see that definitively as we go through God's Word, okay? So we're going to see that these nations are the seven heads they're alluded to. So the heads definitively are kingdoms, okay? Some people might say, well, didn't Germany persecute Israel? Yes, they did, but they persecuted Israel and the Jews when they were not a nation yet, all right? Hitler persecuted the Jews in the 1930s. Israel didn't become a nation again until 1948, okay? And plus, he didn't, his goal was to eradicate all the Jews, but he couldn't get to all of them because they weren't all there, all right? So we have this definitive picture. So let's read Daniel chapter 7, a portion of it, in verse 17 through 25, so you can flip back to the Old Testament with me real quick. We want to read that just to give some clarity from everything that I've just said. Daniel chapter 7, we're going to read verses 17 through 25, all right? Daniel chapter 7, verse 15 through 25, sorry, 17 through 25, all right? Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, Namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, you ready? The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. Therefore, we know heads represent kingdoms, all right, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. 
He shall subdue three kings. That's the little horn that overcomes the three horns. Okay. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Of course, this is the Antichrist. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. That's the three and a half years of the end. So we definitely get some clarity there on these heads represent kingdoms and who they are, all right? We go further, all right, and you start reading, and we look in uh, verse 2 back in our passage in uh, Revelation chapter 13. In verse 2, it says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, had feet of a bear, mouth of a lion. What is this talking about? Again, if you go back and you read Daniel chapter 7 later, which I encourage you to do all of it in the beginning part, it talked about how each one of these heads that Daniel saw had a characteristic, all right? So the Babylonian empire was like a lion. The Medo-Persian empire was like a bear. And the Greek empire was like a leopard, okay? So we see the characteristics of all the other kingdoms. This is why this is important, guys, manifested in the final kingdom that would arise at the end. So in other words, this last final empire will come on the scene. It will have all the characteristics, the worst characteristics, the most evil characteristics and powerful characteristics of all the other empires that ever persecuted the nation of Israel. It will be all combined in one. It's a bad dude, okay? And that's what this picture is giving in Revelation 13. This isn't a joke, this is going to be serious stuff, all right? Because why? Why is it, how is it getting its power and receiving it? Verse 2 tells us, by Satan. Did you see that? The dragon gave him his power. What's the dragon from chapter 12? The enemy, Satan, all right? Gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. That's why when we looked last week, we saw Satan himself had the seven heads, remember? And he had 10 horns as well, showing that he was ruling all this. But where was Satan's crowns? Do you remember on the dragon? Where were the crowns on the dragon? They were on the heads, okay? Showing how he has led each empire over time. The, drag, the, horns, rather, the crowns on the horns of the beast are where? The crowns are on the horns, all right, of the 10 horns showing that Satan really throws this power into these kings at the end time who are going to rise up and come against Israel. All right, so verse 3, as we keep going through our passage in chapter 13, we know now that these heads represent what? Kingdoms, okay? So this is where we can definitively say in chapter 13, we're still right now talking about an empire at the end, not yet specifically about a man yet. That's going to come, okay? We're still talking about a kingdom. Let's read this. Chapter 3, and I saw one of his heads, heads represent kingdoms, one of the kingdoms, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. All right, what are we looking at here? If heads represent kingdoms, we know that there was one that's going to have a fatal wound and will be revived. That's basically what it's pointing to. You look at all the other kingdoms that we just listed, Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, all right? All of them were conquered and absorbed into another empire, okay? So they didn't just die. Something else absorbed them and kept going. Does that make sense? Except for the Roman Empire. That final, that sixth one, just died. It was not absorbed into another empire. Therefore, it is the one that's dead 
and will then come back. That's the revived Roman Empire, the seventh and final empire of the end times. Okay? So we have clarity on that. Heads represent kingdoms, fatal wound to be revived. Let's gain some more clarity on that, okay? Because we need Scripture to represent Scripture and interpret it for us. Turn to Revelation 17. And we're going to read verses 7 through 14. We're going to skip ahead. And I'm going to read it to you this time out of the um, ESV version. Revelation chapter 17, verse 7 through 14, because we're going to get understanding from God's word on this beast. It says, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. All right, that'd be great. Let us have it. All right. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers of, on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, are you ready? Are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. All right. Five whom have fallen. One is... The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not and is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called the chosen and faithful. All right, so let's dig this out for understanding. So right here in chapter 17, verse 8, we have a direct reference to the Antichrist now, okay? So we're kind of switching gears just a little bit. We'll come back to him in our chapter 13. But chapter 17 first starts by pointing out at the man, the Antichrist. Okay? It says, that beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. All right? So he was on earth. He's now not at the time John is writing, but he will come up again. How? Out of the abyss. What's the abyss? It's the holding place for demons, okay? So we know, as we've alluded to before, that this Antichrist will be a demon-possessed individual to carry forth the power of Satan across the earth, all right, in his wrath, all right? So we know we're talking about him. So what are we looking at here? What does it mean it was and he's not and he's going to come again? What is that? Is the Bible teaching reincarnation here? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The Bible does not teach reincarnation, ever. It does not, all right? So this is not teaching reincarnation. This is referring to an evil spirit, the spirit of the Antichrist, all right? Kind of like the spirit of Elijah that was in John the Baptist, all right? One proof of that, Jesus talking in the Gospels, and you can go back and read these passages, when he was saying that Elijah must come, and he said, in fact, Elijah has already come. You remember that? And who is he alluding to? 
John the Baptist. What was Jesus saying? That John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnated? No. John the Baptist had the same spirit, the same heart, the same message as Elijah, okay? These two people, when they preached, y'all think I preach hard? They were up in the grill of people. You brood of vipers, repent. That was their message. Boy, if I preach like that, I might have three people here next week. You know what I'm saying? But that's what their message was because it was a time for rebellious people where they were coming up and repent, repent, turn from your sin and turn to God. And that was their message. And that same spirit was in John the Baptist before making the way, paving the way for Jesus to come in his ministry. All right? So it's not reincarnation. Also, we see this as proof in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, where it says, the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and is already in the world. Okay, you see how this is? So we're talking about the spirit of the Antichrist that was, is not, and is to come. Well, who was he in? Well, many people, but this probably is given direct reference to a, a brother by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who you can go back and read about later in Daniel chapter 11, who had the same Antichrist and, uh, spirit and did a lot of the same things that the Antichrist will do during the end times, except he did it on a much smaller scale, okay? And that's important. So that's where this passage is pointing to. The one who was, is not, and is to come. That same spirit. And it foreshadows that abomination of desolation that's going to take place. Now, verse 9 in chapter 17 said that this woman is a city. And we're going to save the thunder for when we get to chapter 17. But we're going to see that this woman that this talks about in chapter 17 is a city. And that's important. Because it's a city sitting on seven hills, all right? Seven mountains. Who is that? What city is known to be the city of seven hills? It's not Lynchburg, guys. I know we're the city of seven hills. It's not, it's, it's not all right? What's the big city over the whole world that's known as the city on seven hills? Rome. 100%. You can Google it if you don't believe me, all right? It's the first thing that pops up. It's Rome. Who's the woman then in the Bible that's pointing to? Rome. Why is that a big deal? Because it later it's going to tell us that she rules over the kings. She's the capital of the Roman, revived Roman Empire. All right? And we're going to see this mystery Babylon and who that is as we get there. All right? But let's not get off track. Let's keep rocking through. So Rome is the capital. All right? And it's going to represent something later as we're going to see. But then it goes further. It says that these hills were not just hills on which the woman sits. They're also kings, all right? This is important because it's the, the Greek word um, babisalus, which usually points to kings, but also we know kings point to kingdoms. You can't have a king without a, a kingdom, all right? So we're looking at five kingdoms here that is pointing to. This is where it says, five have fallen, one is, one's not yet come. What is that talking about? We just went through it. Five have fallen. Who's that? Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek. All right? Then John says one is. Is what? In power at the time he's writing. Who is that? Rome. Got it? Makes sense, don't it? Now, one is still yet to come. Who's that going to be? Revived Roman Empire at end times. See, it's not hard. Look at that. Y'all are learning. Come on, give yourself a hand. All right, let's keep going. All right, so verse 11, all right, and, and we see this definitively when we look at chapter 
13, verse 3, when it says that the one with the wound will come up to power. That's that seventh one, okay? So now verse 11 in chapter 17, because we still got to gain this clarity, all right? It says, um, it's referring to these kings, these horns, okay, in chapter 17 that we just read. And we say that this beast, all right, these five kings, these kings, this beast that was not and is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, okay? What is it talking about here? It's referring back to Daniel, again, where the little horn overtakes three of the horns, makes his own little mini kingdom, okay? That's what he's going to have over the first half of the tribulation, his power over there. And it's not until the abomination of desolation happens that the other seven kings give him their authority, and now he has reign over ten. Does that make sense? So he overcomes the three through the first half, but he's still in peace. He's still a great dude. He does something that makes the other seven giving him his power. What do you think that is? Blasphemes God, guys. This revived Roman Empire is a, is a conglomeration, a conglomeration, I can't speak, of 10 Islamic nations with a main focus of Islam. So seven of them are still skeptical in the first part. They're like, man, why are you letting the Jews rebuild the temple? Why are you doing all this? He comes in, he sets himself up in the temple. He says, hey, I'm God, you're gonna worship me. And they're gonna believe then that he is the Almighty, the 12th Imam. And they're gonna say, that's my boy. And they're gonna give their power and authority to him. And therefore there comes the wrath on all the world. Okay, that's what we're looking at. And that's what we'll see as we go through God's word. So this eighth that it's talking about is the mini kingdom over the three that he forms. And the others give him his alliance and authority later at that midpoint, all right? After the abomination of desolation. That is the eighth that comes up from the seventh, all right? It's all one kingdom. So these 10 kings correspond to everything that we've talked about, these 10 horns, 10 kings. And hopefully you have that picture now, all right? This is important. Let's go back to chapter 13 now. That we've gained some clarity from chapter 17. We're in verse 4 right now. It says, So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Hold up just a minute. They worshiped who? Satan. They thought they were worshiping a person. A false religion. Anybody getting a word here? You see, we get so flipped out about Satan worshipers, which we should. Sick, right? Animal sacrifice, all that kind of stuff. That, that's, that's sick. But that's a very small percentage of people in America and across the world. Do you know what the larger portion of people are that worship Satan that we don't even realize? People who worship false religions. That's God's word, guys. Jesus even, we just read it through when Jesus was talking to the churches. What did he call the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? What did he call them? A doctrine of what? Demons. What's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Trying to preach you can have Jesus in the world too. That you can inf infiltrate the world and still have your faith and live in immorality and idolatry and everything else. That was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in a nutshell. Jesus called that a doctrine of demons. 
If you're worshiping anything and adding anything to this word other than what Jesus said, you are worshiping Satan. We should be just as infuriated about the false doctrine and the ear tickling down the street as we are the Satan worshipers in the temple. That's God's word. That's scary stuff. They're worshiping Satan, it says. They thought they were worshiping an antichrist in a system who is the man and doing great things. Worshiping Satan. Mm. That's deep stuff. He's a bad dude. He's wicked. He's going to unleash wrath upon the earth. Verse 5 and 6. He was given a mouth to speak great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God and to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. He's given a mouth. This is where we see, now we see this shift, all right? We were talking about the kingdom of the beast. Now we're talking about the spokesperson of the beast, the Antichrist. So therefore, we know that the revived Roman Empire and the Antichrist are referred to as the beast from the sea, okay? So now we will know which one the Bible is talking about by the context in which they're speaking as we go through, all right? So this spokesperson, this leader, the Antichrist, again, defined from Daniel and other passages all through Scripture, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, all right? We see he's going to speak blasphemies. He's going to be a silver-tongued devil, though. He's going to be a smooth operator. He's going to lead people astray. And how long does he reign here? What does it say? 42 months. What's that? The last three and a half years of the tribulation, all right? So we see that he's getting this evil reign from them. But you say, Brad, hold up. Didn't we see him in the first seal? Yes, we did. He's already been on the earth for three and a half years, but he hasn't inf inflicted his wrath and his true character until the midway point when Satan helps him and empowers him in turns, okay? So, God allows this final evil king and kingdom to usher in the end of the sinful world that's turned their hearts against God. Because what we're going to see, people have their hearts so hardened against God at the end, they're actually going to want to fight Jesus. Can you imagine being so hard-hearted and infuriated with truth and Jesus that you actually want to fight him? That's what's going to happen in the end. That's how hard and evil people's hearts will be. So he opened his name in blasphemy. What would that blasphemy be? Because everything's pointing to one world religion being Islam at the end, okay? I can't point you to a verse that says Islam is the final religion at the end. It's not in there. But if you, if you study Islamic eschatology and you study what the Bible says, everything starts pointing that direction. So what could be the blasphemy? Saying that he's God and to worship him. Well, there's something called the Shahada. All right, they're from Islam. Said so there's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. And they believe that the 12th Imam, when he comes, which they believe will be the Antichrist, and they'll think he's the 12th Imam, their savior, the Al Mahdi, that when he sets himself up and says there's no other God but Allah, and you got to worship him, if you don't, then you get killed. And you see how this happens, and all can line up. All right? And he says he blasphemes not only God, but those in heaven. Who's in heaven? Angels. But then also, who's in heaven right now? The church. Satan's been kicked out. It's the church is in heaven. Whether you're pre-trib or mid-trib, right now the church is in heaven, all right? 
Okay, Whether you, whatever you think it is, doesn't matter. Right now, the church is in heaven. He's blaspheming all those and their testimony and what they did. All right, verse seven and eight in chapter 13. It was granted him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. All authority and power was given to him over every tongue, tribe, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. And we talked about that. And we talked about how they will believe that he's the Almighty and they will they'll give him authority. And that Almighty, and you study Islamic eschatology, he will have the goal to convert everybody to Islam. And those who are not converted, he will kill. And that's not an excerpt from some radical. That's actually taught, okay, in Islamic eschatology, all right, for all. So when you get to chapter 20, verse 4, you kind of see this come together because it is said he sees the souls of those who were beheaded for faith in Jesus, all right? Some pretty scary stuff because we see how a lot of the extremist Islamic forces kill people on TV, okay? It's not pretty. We see that, all right? So verse 9 and 10, we get this Hebrewism, if you will. It points to divine providence that all um, who are there who... Where am I at? <laughs> I lost my spot. Lost my spot. Here we go. That all who were there were, if you're going to live by the sword, you die by the sword. It's pointing to divine providence, okay, right there. If anyone has the ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword, all right? Referencing almost Jeremiah 15 too, not a direct quote, but talking about God's divine providence. So there's going to come a time where God's plan is going to be fulfilled and it won't be thwarted. That's why God said, hey, don't fear those what? In Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who can just kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. That they're going to have to stand to the end, that only the faithful will stand. All right, now let's go to verse 11. So now we've got all the information we need on Boss Hog. Now we need to learn about Roscoe, all right? Look at verse 11 and read through verse 18 of chapter 13. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that, even, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image and of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. All right. So we know we're about to study this false prophet. We get him called out here in Revelation 19 as such. Okay. He's not going to definitively call him that here, but this is who we're studying. 
The Bible says in the start of that passage in verse 11 says, and another come up, another beast. That word another is that Greek word alos. It means another of the same kind. Of what kind? Having the same spirit, the same evil heart, the same evil character, okay? That kind of beast coming up out again. And he says this time that he comes up out of the earth, not up out of the sea, all right? So just as the beast from the sea didn't come up out of the literal sea, this beast of the earth didn't come up out of the literal earth, okay? Again, it's not sci-fi. What it's talking about here is this Greek word is G-E, gehe, and it literally means land, okay? So two things here. Some people believe, some theologians believe that it's pointing to land as being Israel, so they believe that this false prophet will be a Jew, okay? Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But if it is, that will make sense because in Islamic eschatology, they believed after the Al-Mahdi shows up that their Jesus will come back as a prophet. Jesus will come back and denounce Christianity, tell everybody, hey, he really didn't die on the cross and that was all a lie and that he is actually here to advance Islam and will help convert everybody to Islam. That's what they believe their Jesus will do. So therefore, it has to be a Jew to be Jesus, right? Kind of makes sense. But regardless, what definitively we can say is land back in John's time was secondary to the sea. Sea was of greater magnitude. The creatures in it were of greater magnitude than the creatures of the land. So it points to his subordinacy, that he's second in command. He's Roscoe to Boss Hog, Okay. So that's what we're seeing and it's pointing to right here. Then it says he has two horns and he's like a lamb. Shows of his meek and mild character, very charismatic personality, all right? He's gonna be a smooth talking devil to deceive people. These two horns point to power. Horns in the Bible always reference power, okay? So he's gonna have power. Two horns could point to his dual power, that the Antichrist is gonna give him power and authority along with Satan. So he's gonna have some political authority and religious authority, all right? So this dual power, it's symmetry. But he speaks the dragon's word. He has the same message. He's subtle and seductive, though. Once you think about that, he's cool, calm, and collected. He's not a crazy wild man that everybody points at and be like, oh, stay away from him. He's a smooth operator. And he just attracts people with his words. That's scary. So what we have here is a wolf. What's the worst kind of wolf, guys? One in sheep's clothing. That's the worst wolf. One that doesn't look like a wolf. And that's who we have here and what we're talking about. All right? So, verse 12. Obviously, the Antichrist has full trust in his false prophet. It's his right-hand man, okay? Because he's going to make everybody worship him, the, the first beast, all right? who had the deadly wound. And this is where some theologians point to here, because now we're definitively talking about the man, the Antichrist, that he will also have a deadly wound. Remember, we had the head, the kingdom that had a deadly wound, the Roman Empire that was revived. Some theologians now point that the actual Antichrist, the man will endure some kind of wound and will be miraculously healed and raised, which will almost mimic Jesus in a way. Okay, again, Satan using deception could be. Scripture definitely kind of looks and points to that right here, that he will have a wound as well and be resurrected, all right? Verse 13 and 14, this is important that John highlights this here. This false prophet is gonna do what? He's gonna perform what? Some signs and wonders. 
performs great signs so that it even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of man, and it deceives those who dwell on the earth with these signs. I want you to think about this for just a minute. He does what? He calls fire down. Who is that like? Elijah. Who also is it like that we just looked at a couple uh, Sundays ago? The two witnesses who everybody had just seen in Jerusalem and in the temple, and they were calling down fire from heaven. Remember that? So when this cat comes on the scene, he performs and pulls down fire from heaven, and that solidifies the message and deception to all the people that this is real and this, he's, a true, he's following a true God. You get that? Satan's a master deceiver, and he's using signs and wonders to deceive people. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Because even Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, that there will be many people come in signs and wonders and said, and they will perform signs that if it were possible, they would deceive and even fool the elect. Think about that. Signs and wonders so great. Everybody thinks that's got to be of God. That's got to be of God. I saw him do it. I saw him do it. It's got to be God. You know what's scary about that? Is that there's many people today that believe in signs and wonders, and if they don't see it, they don't believe God's there. That's scary. That's really scary stuff. Because the Bible's very clear right here and in other passages, not all signs and wonders are from God. You can write that down and put 45 stars around it in your notes. Please do it. Not all signs and wonders are from God. Some are from evil to deceive you and pull you away, all right? It's very important you understand that because we have a, a world that's looking for signs and wonders and they think that's where God is. If that's all you're looking for, you're opening yourself up for deception, okay? Can I just make that clear, all right? There was a, a ministry years ago that come under a sign that said, uh, unity under signs and wonders. That would sound like a great ministry if we're reading here for Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet to be. All about signs and wonders, baby. Hey, I want you to hear that, all right? What are we saying? That God cannot perform signs and wonders and miracles? No, that's not what I'm saying. He surely can because he's God. Yes, he can. And yes, he does. But... There's also those that the enemy uses to perform signs and wonders and leads people astray. How you know the difference? By the fruits you'll know them. By the fruits you'll know them, 100%, whether they're false or not. What are the fruits of God's work? Always. Truth, love, humility, all the fruits of the Spirit, but especially those three. Truth, love, humility. Anyone doing false stuff is not going to have all the truth. They're going to have 95 to 99% truth. That's what's so scary. But that 1% to 5% lie will suck you in. Okay? Love. Humility. That's a huge one. Because a lot of the people performing signs and wonders today that aren't of the Lord are very arrogant and pompous. If you see a teacher that gives signs of, of arrogance and pride and pompousness, and they're pointing to only signs and wonders, you better run, buddy. Because there's some out there and they're very popular on the internet right now. You better run, okay? Because there's some deception somewhere if there's pride and arrogancy 
and only looking to signs. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7, 21 through 23? Not everyone who calls me Lord is going to enter my kingdom. Then what does it say? Many will come to me on that day and say, but Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name, cast out demons, and perform many miracles, signs and wonders? And he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Never knew you. That's in your Bible. So yes, not everybody casting out demons and performing signs and wonders and miracles is of God. Be very careful for the wolves in sheep's clothing, all right? Verse 15 in our passage here in chapter 13. This is important. This is where it all comes to life. He will give life to the image of the beast. Think about this, okay? Who is the only one that can give life, actual breath, life, living? God. So does he make this thing come to life in terms of living and breathing? No. No. Only God can give actual life. So this has to mean something a little different. We see this Greek word for this word breath here is actually the word pneuma. And it can mean spirit, which can mean breath, but it can also mean to think, to have emotion or make decisions. So he's going to make an inanimate object animated. Think about that. How could that happen? How could that happen? It can't be life, so it's got to mean thinking and decisions. What things do we know and have today that think and talk and make decisions? An inanimate object that's very animated. Your computers, your phones, technology. Guys, when, when John was writing this, he's probably like, what the heck? What are you talking about? He's going to make a, an image come to life? That seems absurd. Even 100 years ago, people would probably read Revelation and be like, what you got here? What do you mean come to life? This sounds like sci-fi now, God. I believed everything else, but this is a little whack now. But I tell you today, right now in the world we live in, we can exactly see how you can make an inanimate object become animated and think and make decisions and communicate. It's right here, baby. Just with technology, you can see the Bible come to life, all right? It was absurd just decades ago, but now it's very real. And we understand the reason why. Why is he going to make this come to life? Why is he going to make this communicate and do? Two reasons. One is to speak. One is to communicate. It said it right here. What's the second one? To cause death to those who don't worship the beast. Oh, now you're talking whack. How is this computer thing going to just kill people across the globe who don't worship the beast? I think you're going to find this very interesting. All right. First of all, this word that right there is the Greek word henna, which means a causal phrase. So we see that, that, that he wants to do this for a reason. It's a cause to communicate and to kill. We know communicate. We've got that one. Computers, phones, teleprompters, everything. We know how it could speak. That's very easy for us. How would it kill, though? That almost seems a little obsolete. Found something. In 2009, a Saudi Arabia inventor, that's a pretty wild place for this to originate, given what we've just talked about, isn't it? Created a microchip to embed in people, fugitives, whoever, that will track people with GPS and has a lethal dose of cyanide that can be activated remotely to kill people. Of course, he didn't get the patent for it because we're in a sane society right now. 
Nobody's given anybody a patent for that, but he tried to get it, believe it or not. But the technology I'm pointing to is already here for this to take place under an insane society in the end times with an evil leader and king that wants to kill those who don't worship the beast. Got it? See how it comes to life? Again, John's day, not possible. 100 years ago, unfathomable. But the technology is already here and waiting. Verse 16. It's going to be mandatory to take the mark. Mandatory. It calls all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and that no one may buy or sell except anyone who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Mandatory to take the mark. You will have to take it. If not, you will be killed on spot or you will be hunted until they find you. You will have to live in a hole, okay? So this mark is the Greek word karagma. It literally means stamp or an imprinted mark or a branding. If we talk about stamps or imprinted marks or branding on skin, what are we talking about today? Tattoos, right? Again, we see this, all right? But now how? How how will this be encouraged? Found some other cool stuff on here because at first people will be sucked in to take this, that this is a good idea. Then the ones that don't think it's a good idea, they're gonna be forced to. But some will think this is a good idea. Well, pharmacologically, there's technology now for tattoos to give a vaccination, all right? Intradermally, not intramuscularly anymore, where you have to get a shot in the muscle. There's coming a time for a tattoo to give a vaccination through the skin, okay? We just saw some of this that just went down. There's actually something just in 2022 with DNA tattooing where they can give a vaccine that delivers specific DNA sequence of an antigen to get an immune response. Obviously, people were kind of hesitant about an mRNA. Can you imagine a DNA actual tattoo? Of course, there are a lot of uh, challenges with that. All right, so it's not on the scene completely yet. But again, the technology is already there. So how could you coax people into thinking this is a good idea? Another virus unleashed across the earth. Hey, this one's worse than COVID. This is killing everybody. You better get this stuff. Yeah, give me that stuff because I don't want to die. See that? You see that? This is a good idea. But then also it goes farther because now a CBS article in 2016 said there's a software company called Chaotic Moon who's developed a tech tattoo that gets embedded into a person's arm and can track a person's financial and medical information. The tattoos are made with electroconductive ink that contain various sensors, and in some cases, tiny microchips. So now you can get this tattoo that will be your mark, that will maybe vaccinate you, who knows, possible, but ultimately it will link you to a financial system in a cashless society under a one-world currency, one-world government, one-world religion. And if you don't it honor that and adhere to that religion, now that in this microchip and tattoo, there's something in there that they can zap you on site remotely. The technology's there is what I'm pointing to. And you see where in Revelation 18, verse 23, when talking to Mystery Babylon, it says, by your great sorcery, you deceive the nations. That word sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy. You can see how all this could play out. Verse 17, no one's going to buy or sell. So 
If you're not going to take it willingly and you don't think it's a good idea, you're going to be forced to just by the bare necessities of life. You can't eat. You can't do anything. You probably can't go to work without this. You will not get health care. Your children won't get health care. Food. Do you see this? You will be forced to take the mark or you will die at their hands or you will die from starvation. That's the pressure that they will be under. It's not a good time to be alive. That's why you surrender your heart to Jesus right now. Stop playing games. Verse 18 says there's a number of a man, 666. This number six, obviously pointing to man, obviously creation. Man was created on the sixth day. Man must work six days a week. Six, of course, is one shy of seven, the number of perfection of God and completeness. And you have many examples. How about the walls of Jericho? The people had to walk around the city six days, and then on the seventh day they fell. Six was one shy of getting it done, right? It's the number of man, because we're one shy of God and our depravity. We can't come to God on our own because of our depravity. It's the number of man, all right? We see this mark doesn't necessarily have to be an actual number, because it says that in that, in that passage, in that verse, it says in that no one can sell her except who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. There's word ors in there. 666 is more of an identifier, okay, of this. Whether that's on there or not doesn't make any difference. The point is, it's there and it's coming and that's what will happen. And you'll be forced to take it or something bad's gonna happen. Revelation 14, nine through 11. I'll just read that real quick. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself must also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and who receives the mark on his name. That's not something you want to take. So where's the victory? Where's the the positive in all of this? We've seen, we've learned, we know definitively everything's in place and it could happen and we see this, how it could all take place. But where's the victory? Verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, verses one through five shares the victory. And I'm not going to read it all word for word to close us up, but it's the lamb and the 144,000. The lamb gives the victory, and we see that there are those, the 144,000 sealed, the Jews that come on and preach the gospel in the face of everybody coming against them, not loving their lives to the death. It says right here that they gained victory, that he saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember how they were sealed? And then he heard a voice. And it was a sound of harps, and they were singing a song that only 144,000 could learn. And it says, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who followed the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. That these are the ones that were not looking for life's pleasures. Their life wasn't about them. Their life was about serving and loving God and getting the message out to people. 
What's the application for us? What is our commandment all through scripture? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love others like we love ourselves. What's the call for all of scripture? To deny ourselves. If you're a follower of Christ, that's the first thing. You must deny yourself, your, your, your flesh, your needs, whatever. And you must repent and turn from that and turn to a holy God. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. This was an example of people who will do that in the worst of the worst of days. What excuse do we have, church, to not live for him right now? These people faced unto death and were beheaded for their faith in the face of a false religion and a false God. They didn't want to fulfill their own fleshly desires or needs. They loved not their life unto the death. They were sold out for Jesus. They were relentless unto the end. There was no turning back. There was no turning away. They were all for God or all for nothing. How about you? How about me? How about this church? Are we all for God or are we all for ourselves? Let's make that change today. I want to leave you with a verse that I want everybody in this church at the sound of my, ver- and my voice. If you don't have it memorized already, you need to write it down, memorize it, put it on your car, put it on your window in your bathroom, put it on your forehead if you have to, if you don't have any hair like me. But I want you to memorize this verse this week. And I want you to, more than that, I want you to live by it. I want you to apply it. It's Galatians 2.20, where Paul said, ready for this? For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave his life for me. There's your verse. There's the application for what these 144,000 did to gain victory. They didn't love their lives even into the death. They were going to stand for Jesus because they have been crucified now with Christ. And they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Because the life they now live in the body, they live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave your life, gave his life for you. Will you live for him? These people are going to have to die for him one day. We can surely live for him. How about it, church? Let's bow our head and close our eyes. I wonder if there's anybody in here today that might just honestly, and I'm going to be the first one to raise my hand with you, just say, Brad, I want to live my life like Paul described in Galatians 2.20. Will you just raise your hand? I'm raising it. I want to live my life that way. Where I've been crucified. My life's not important anymore, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave his life for me. who might be in here today and just honestly say, Brad, I've never surrendered my life to Jesus. And that's the first thing I need to do right now. The Lord's been pricking my heart in this message and I wanna surrender and I wanna give my life to him right now and be saved. If that's you, I want you to do that right now before you leave this place. I'm gonna lead you through a prayer and I want you to do business from your heart to God's heart and commit your life to him today. You might be here and you say, Brad, I've walked with the Lord previously in my life. I've made a decision for him and there was a time where I was on fire for him and walked with him, but lately I've drifted away. That fire's gone out and my life's and my faith's gone cold and I wanna come running back to the cross today and be on fire for Jesus. I wanna live my life by Galatians 2.20 and it's not about me anymore, it's all about him and I wanna rededicate my life to him today. 
If that's you, I want you to do business with God in the same way right now in this prayer. And just know that it's not just magic words. It's not the words by themselves that save you. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified right now. Where with your heart, will you commit and entrust your life to Jesus right now? Then when you speak those words and confess with your tongue, you're saved. Let's do that right now. Today, for the first time, or to rededicate, just say, dear Lord, I admit to you right now that I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of your glory. And I need you, my Savior. I've messed up. And Lord, I need you to put me back together. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross. The perfect lamb, the spotless lamb, who broke his body and shed his blood that I could be forgiven. He took the penalty of my sin and put it upon himself so that I could be set free. Thank you, Lord, for that redemption and that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness. And I fall on my knees in humility and submission to you right now. Thank you for raising him from the grave three days later, proving that he is God and he stands in victory over this enemy that we've been talking about in all hell, sin, death, and the grave. And I want to stand in victory with Jesus. So I surrender all of me to all of you. My commitment to you is that every step I take and every breath I make will always be for your glory from this day forward. Galatians 2.20. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Amen. If you did business with God right there, for the first time, or you rededicated your life, would you boldly and unashamed raise your hand and say, Brad, I did business with Jesus today, and I'm not ashamed. I want to pray for you. Amen. If I don't see you, God does. Amen. Church, can we give Jesus a big round of applause? He surely deserves it and is worthy of it. Well, I hope you have some more clear understanding of the riddle of Revelation 13 because what it's going to do is set the stage and give us clear understanding as we move to the rest of the book. And actually, it'll point even and, and tell us who Mystery Babylon will be biblically, not just pulling straws out of hats, taking a chance, but can we biblically define what and who all this is? The answer is yes. So be ready to come back next week as we continue in Revelation. Let's take this word. Let's Galatians 2.20. Remember, memorize it, live by it. Let's go make an impact for Jesus. We'll see you next Sunday. Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work, and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ.